Hello and welcome. My name is Kavi Chavla, your host for a series of Bataan Salon podcasts focused on technology and human-centric transformation in financial services. Over the coming weeks, we will be joined by industry experts and guests to discuss strategies and tactics to guide financial services organizations in responding to industry headwinds and pressures, including those amplified or created by the coronavirus. We are thrilled to be joined by our partners, Trility Consulting, as we jointly explore the paradigm shift towards real-time, distributed, and dynamic virtual environments as the new normal in banking and finance. Today, we will discuss four key points of focus for financial services institutions when approaching technology and human-centric transformation. The first is the idea of flow. The second is necessity of performance metrics that measure throughput, qualitative experience, and humanistic value. And finally, we will explore the implications on organizational culture, and data management. Matthew, one of the key elements in effectively framing an organization's approach to technology and human-centric transformation is the concept of flow. Can we dive a little deeper into that? Thank you. That's a great question and a fun question. It's an interesting thing to think about how do our people do work. And we tend to delegate lots of the work to others who have very distinct and explicit responsibilities and then they are enabled and equipped to create processes and procedures and tools and so forth that go along with it. And one of the things that uh, we all notice through time is that something that may have taken two or three steps when it was just one person could turn into 15 or 20 or 30 steps when it becomes very many people. And it can move from a 30-minute experience to a multiple-day experience. And so the addition of people and their context adds time and cost. And it's a normal thing. It happens in project estimation all of the time frequently. And it's something that folks constantly are, are battling with. One of the things that we would typically uh, continue to encourage people is to concentrate on the very simplest of things, which is flow. For example, as an organization, what is the desired outcome or desired set of outcomes for the organization as a whole or for business units individually or departments or organizations within those uh, business units? Help people understand what the vision is or the desired outcome or what does it look like when it's done? Where do you want people to get to from point A to point B? But in particular, one of the things that's hard in organizations, especially as they scale, is to understand the actual work that everyone has to do to achieve an objective or get to a desired outcome. In order to reduce the friction or reduce the time from here to there, generally I'd focus on flow. What does it take to get from here to there and how can I make it smaller and smoother and quicker but still of a certain quality and security? So focusing on the people and their experience, what do they have to do in order to achieve these objectives or these desired outcomes? That's fewer systems, steps, key clicks. You can look at it like this. It's a really easy illustration. If I say for an organization, I need to get from where we are to this other new place, and it will be amazing when we get there, and then I describe what that experience will be. There are many experiences the people in the organization may have, and for them to get from one place to another could look like a congested parking lot, 
after a big event, whether it's a big major league game of some sort, a giant music or play, something downtown where it's congested in a large metropolitan area, but a congested parking lot, getting out of it, getting onto the road, getting through the lights, getting to the on-ramp and eventually getting to where you hope to go, congested parking lots are pretty tough and it does try character and patience. It could also look like a four-way stop. For example, everybody's in line, everybody takes a turn, there's lots of starting, stopping, and waiting, and starting, and stopping, and just keep repeating until eventually it's your turn. And then we have the experience that many of us have had where someone, whether mistakenly or purposefully, goes out of turn. And then that creates disarray, and then the system has to restabilize, and tempers need to calm down, and then people start going again. Alternatively, there's a roundabout view. And a roundabout is designed to facilitate constant flow or constant progress. And as leaders in an organization, when we're focusing on people, my encouragement, my perspective on that really is not just cast the vision at the top and wait for the trickle down, but in addition to that, understand for all of the people in the organization, all of the work that they have to do in order to bring that outcome to realization, how do I create the most frictionless, positive experience for them possible. And instead of talking about tools and processes and 14 projects and budgeting for this and that and the other thing, concentrate on flow. If an organization were to concentrate on flow, flow requires you to discuss friction. And when we discuss friction, it requires us to change. So in order to get from where we are to where we want to go, my encouragement is focus on flow and look at it like a roundabout. So if I'm a leader in an organization and Wade, welcome your, your input here as well. How do I start to understand those points of friction and the existing flow or lack thereof in my organization? And then how do I start to pivot the way I'm operating within my organization to enable that flow, especially again, as we're in parallel shifting towards a more distributed workforce? Uh, absolutely. I mean, Matthew, I really love your use of the word flow because of just the the dynamic nature of the word and trying to build something that is more frictionless. In terms of what leaders can actually do, you know, I'd, I'd kind of dig back into the toolbox and, and pull out that trusty friend of process mapping to really understand what is going on and how do the various inputs get transformed into usable outputs that create value for the client. There's some really good progress I think that's been made over the past two decades really in like call center management in terms of people really having to understand and put hard metrics around the different interactions that people are having with their clients and to try to quantitatively and qualitatively assess those things. So those are some disciplines that a lot of organizations might have some deep pockets of experience with even though it's not spread out across the organization. And it's been very typical that some pockets of organizations will resist distributed working because of maybe a lack of experience with it or a lack of confidence in it. 
And one of the wonderful things that we can thank COVID-19 for is this large forced experiment to really get everyone and all processes ultimately functioning in a distributed way. So I think the, the guidance would be to really you know, look into the organization at areas that have had to manage processes in a very disciplined way and that they manage their outcomes, not just the inputs, you know, not looking at people at a desk and thinking that they're adding value to the client, but really looking at what is happening that is moving the ball forward for that client. And so it, it will be a big lift for organizations that aren't used to working in a distributed fashion, but I am extraordinarily confident that there are places within that organization where these processes are being managed uh, in a very tight way and that that lesson can be extended throughout the organization so that people are able to effectively work in a distributed manner. I'd like to continue the discussion on process mapping a little deeper. Many of the organizations we speak to still approach process mapping as a technical activity. Matthew, can you speak to the integration of people along the process mapping journey? I particularly favor the process map and one thing I would, would like to add, uh, in ex at least experientially, that I've found valuable is if there is, for example, a supply chain conversation from point of design to point of implementation, I have found additional value as well when doing the process mapping to include people from every step along the way. That way we don't have anyone asserting an understanding, but rather we are getting firsthand fact-based understanding. And then it brings a sense of ownership and inclusion for folks as well, so that they recognize that this optimization is not intended to be their elimination, but rather this optimization is intended to help them keep smiling. In, in, indeed, I mean, I'd really like to reinforce that point because where we've seen the frontline employees have an active ownership of the process mapping experience, you will see it yield a lot of interesting information and positive results. I mean, it, it's not an abstract exercise. And this is something where you want the people who are actually involved at the sharp end of the work and that are doing it to be able to explain, you know, what are those inputs? What's the defect rate? What are the various decisions that need to be made? And then ultimately, how are those outputs created to add value to the customer? Uh, having the, that frontline staff involved is really, really key to getting something of, of use out of an exercise like that. I'd like to shift the discussion a little from the process to the outcomes. Wade, how do an organization's metrics of success in measures of output need to transform alongside the organization's human-centric transformation? You know, one, one thing that I've observed across a number of different uh, transformation activities, and, and I really feel it's a critical success element to these programs of transformation, is the frontline staff have to have enough agency in the outcome to be able to impact what is being measured. And maybe if we keep playing with this call center analogy, you know, because a lot of, a lot of financial services institutions uh, have pockets of their organizations that work in that way, it's very possible to have goals and measures that incentivize the wrong behavior for the client. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that all of us have an experience where we dialed into a call center and, and just felt 
in our heart that they wanted us off the phone as quickly as possible, right? Because that was their guiding measure. And when you, when you can demonstrate to the frontline staff that their effort in this sort of process reimagining, that they can have an impact on how success is defined, uh, this is where you really find a lot of power and innovation in making sure that these processes are gonna perform in a way that's gonna delight your customer uh, rather than distract or upset them. So what are the types of metrics that organizations should be focused on? And, and I'm particularly concerned for organizations that are now grappling with having to manage dispersed processes. You know, they might not have been putting the focus on the correct measures. You know, you'll, you'll often see a lot of input related attention put to how people will manage their business or their processes and their human capital. And hopefully this is going to give everybody the need and, and even the space to reimagine what are those metrics being used to define success um, and, and to reimagine their processes in a dispersed environment that, that can ultimately make the customer happier. You know, this is not a, a bad thing. Uh, managing dispersed processes is not negative. It's just a facet of how it works. And if companies can really latch onto this and take the opportunity to truly reimagine it in a way where they're measuring things that are meaningful to their client, uh, then they're going to find a lot of success. Boy, that's a really good call out, Wade. The metrics, the quality of the metrics is a constant multi-generational challenge for organizations, knowing that what should be measured, how it should be measured, and then what do we do with those measurements. And call centers, that is a spectacular example where having quantitative metrics doesn't necessarily speak to qualitative value and it doesn't speak to experiential value, doesn't even speak to client satisfaction necessarily. So I do have a concern similar to what you're saying, whereby companies that are just now figuring out geographically distributed teams or remote teams or 100% remote companies may feel an inclination to batten down the hatches and hold on more tightly to things, including metrics and the meaning of metrics. And those are just really uh, really difficult, slippery slopes. Uh, for example, and it harkens back to a decades old argument inside the technology space whereby people chose or pursue 100% test coverage, mm -hmm. believing that they have all of the things tested, therefore there are no metrics, or I'm sorry, no defects. Mm -hmm. and we've proven through time that 100% test coverage does not mean defect-free software. It just means we didn't find the defects that are there. Similarly, with metrics in particular, adding more metrics, measuring more things, measuring more things about people um, could very easily go the wrong direction and make it an even more miserable experience to be an employee of a company than it was previously. So what a spectacular conversation. I would Again, circle this back to then concentrating on flow first and foremost and letting flow then elucidate what metrics matter the most. But then, of course, they have to come into experiential and, and qualitative things as well. But there needs to be some pole position from which people uh, reference in order to define valuable metrics. Uh, we could talk about that all afternoon. What a spectacular uh, subject, Wade. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I, I'm always fascinated about 
you know, through the process of building a balanced scorecard or identifying the strategic measures that people want to use to lead their companies forward, you hit on it very well, this mix of quantitative and qualitative. It's almost as though you need two measures, you know, the, the quant and the qual, to really be certain that you are heading in the right direction. Because, you know, unfortunately, numbers and metrics can be gamed, and people are very good at figuring out patterns of incentive. So being able to have those two dimensions to illuminate your balance scorecard and help you understand the, the actual kind of hard mechanistic metric, uh, but as well get that more qualitative flavor to understand how the customer might really be experiencing it is, is just crucial. Matthew, sticking with the call center analogy, can you talk us through an example of what metrics of success could or should look like? If we were to talk about, say, a typical person who is going on to an eight or 10 hour shift or whatever their role and responsibility is, but their responsibility is to field incoming requests, whether it's satisfaction or how to, or my things have broken or whatever it is, their, their job is to field everything that comes in. We've seen from work in the past, uh, oftentimes uh, folks are measured on the number of uh, calls or requests they receive and the number that they close in a very short period of time. And there's always a target close or oftentimes there's a target close at some call centers that say, we're expecting on average if we receive X calls per hour per day and X calls take on average X minutes, therefore you should be able to handle approximately you know, X times X uh, requests per shift and that becomes the performance measure. In that situation, uh, they have in fact focused on flow, which is how do we get them in? How do we queue? How do we distribute load? How do we keep people happy until they receive, the, the, the receive an agent to help them solve the problem? But then in particular, how do we provide the information necessary, the knowledge and the training and so forth, such that that person can handle the majority of all things coming in in the shortest period of time to meet our metrics? That is a flow-based conversation. It's quantitative. And that's good. What's missing, uh, to Wade's point uh, earlier, is it's not multidimensional. Nothing in that flow-based conversation discussed the quality of the experience, but rather the light switches on, the light switches off, now count them, now multiply them, now we have throughput. And measuring the value of the call center and the person and the shift by the throughput doesn't tell the whole story and in fact may chew through people and may chew, chew through customers. Alternatively, some organizations do not measure some of those things, but rather they say, hey, at the end of every phone call, we want people to be able to answer one question. Would you hire this person that just helped you solve this problem? And if the answer is yes, now they have a multi-dimensional measurement, which is not only quantitative, but qualitative. They're giving some latitude to the complexity of the request, but they're also giving latitude to make sure that the call center person is able to handle everything to the best of their ability from beginning to end, and possibly even giving them authority to say, hey, you know what, I don't know the answer to that, but the person sitting beside me does. Let me check real quick and I'll come right back. So there are multiple ways that this could go, and you can actually do flow 
incorrectly to the detriment of people and clients. Um, so an encouragement would be in a call center example is not only focus on, hey, on average, based on the things that we've seen and heard, this is what we see. Therefore, this seems to be a somewhat normative behavior and therefore is our baseline expectation of you. But it has to be followed up with some other dimensions as well. And one of my favorite actually is an airline that uh, the way I get handled is at the end of it, I'm asked one question. Would you hire this person for your company? And if my answer is yes, that just became multidimensional. It not only focused on flow, but it focused on value. And that is what a great call out earlier from Wade on that, making sure that it's multidimensional. That's how I would tend to implement or think through or focus. It's not just number of incoming, wait time, number of conclusive solutions or hangups, if you will, or disconnects, but rather... At the end of this, do I still want to be your customer? At the end of this, did you actually help me see things differently than I originally saw them? At the end of this, am I happy? And measuring happiness, really hard. A lot of people try and work away from that and find some other forms of measure. But the reality is, if I say I absolutely would hire this person because of how well they handled me, that is a softer qualitative measure and one that I personally actually love as a customer as well as want to use as a service provider. Well, it's so profound. I mean, it, it's a very simple question, but boy, does it get at so many different elements of the interaction with regards to the, the human interaction and the ability of the person helping the client to have empathy you know, you're considering whether or not the question was actually solved. I mean, that, that's just some very, very fertile ground uh, that that question enables companies to take advantage of. That's a really nice one. And Wade, maybe to, to follow up on that, right? Like you said, it's a profound shift in mindset. And obviously then that trans, you know, translates down into organizational culture, mm -hmm. right? So it sounds like, again, shifting from some of these more well, process flow oriented quantitative outcomes to kind of this more humanistic, holistic, value driven metric system requires some rethinking at the top of a house and then, you know, transformation of an organizational culture. Could you maybe expound on that a little given your experience? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I feel really passionate about because if you think about us as a culture, you know, from, from Henry Ford's production lines, we've been ingrained through decades of dimming to really focus on this quantitative aspect. And what, what I hope a lot of what we're going through now as, as people and as a society is really going to help everybody appreciate the more humanistic aspect uh, with regard to measuring a successful outcome. And it can't solely be mechanistic. You've got to have a way of, you know, you, you could say qualitative, but it, you, you're measuring the humanity of the interaction. And that is a challenge for leaders um, to be able to unlearn uh, good, good knowledge, good behaviors that, that have good results from a mechanistic point of view, but really now paying attention to the soft side of it 
and how it ensures that the the staff is is cared for and has metrics that are rewarding to them and make contextual sense for them and that give a good outcome uh, to the client. So without a doubt, there's a there's an enormous requirement for leaders to be able to be more lateral thinkers and to not just look at, as Matthew said, you know, the light on and off and how many times did it go on and off, but to really consider the environment that's being created, the human interaction that's taking place, and figuring out a fair and equitable way to put a number around that to really pay attention to it. Matthew, what do these technological process and organizational culture changes mean for an organization's approach to its data? That's a, a fun, deep and broad question. It kind of leads me into the conversation of knowing what you want to know and then um, ignoring the rest until you know you need to pay attention to it and it's super difficult. And I'll give you an example of that. It's really, um, if we distill this whole conversation, so you know, all others bring data. The problem with data is if you don't what, know what you want to know, then you may try and collect everything or you may not know everything you should be collecting. In addition to that, then after you have all of the data, you don't know what actually is valuable versus what is noise. And of the noise, you don't know why it's noise. And so you may lose good data inside bad data because of lack of clarity. It's a tremendous and amazing experience to figure these things out. Simpler is to say, what do I want to know? What do I want to know about my organization? What do I need to know about my organization? And how quickly do I need to know it? And then of these things, how much of this information is just plain informative? I have a curiosity or these are pinpoints that I need to pay attention to on a regular basis and they have standard deviations. And as long as they stay inside the ranges, I'm all good. So knowing those things matters. Not knowing those things, um, ignorance is bliss for a while, I suspect, but not for a long period of time. After you have an idea of what you wanna know, where do you collect the data? Where do you put the data? How do you normalize that data? And then how do you sort? And if you want to get to a view across an organization, if you will, and you want to understand when you must act versus when you can just listen, the data needs to be refined. And it's a difficult thing for folks to figure out. And this is why the metrics conversation resonates so much here, because this is a form of the metric. And we're talking about systems and organizations and people and teams and projects, and it turns into a, just a big mess. Collecting is not winning. Collecting is just starting. So. What do I have? What do I need to know? Where do I get the data? Where do I put the data? How do I normalize the data? And then how do I manage it in such a way that I can make decisions that matter? And that includes being able to, if you will, go spelunking into the dark cavernous caves of, of scary data uh, to be able to say, ah, oh, that's interesting, but not important. Ah, uh, that's interesting. And I should take note of that or, Hey, this entire cavern is full of things that have the propensity to do bad things to us and our clients. I need to know about this all of the time. So we need to define if you know what it is that you want to know, or you need to discover that that's a normal journey. But after that, there need to be uh, event-based triggers. And basically it just says this, 
if this situation falls into this particular um, set of characteristics, then we're good. If it falls outside those set of characteristics, then we need to dive deeper and figure out, is there a problem with our metric? Is there a problem in the system that we need to go fix? And if there is, let's go make the decision. The distribution of teams and people and processes and organizational change and COVID being a stimulus for transformational behaviors and changes in organizations, spectacular and difficult and hard and also overwhelming. Everyone can easily be overwhelmed by no longer having physical relationships with folks or proximity. They can be overwhelmed by the 17 new measurements that have been applied to them personally or team-wise. And so I still go back to focusing on flow. I sound like a broken record. I recognize but I believe that a fallback position always needs to be, if you don't know what you need to know, focus on flow. If you're not making the amount of money you want to make, focus on flow. If you think your whole house is broken, are you sure? But it requires a lot of technical work as well at the end of the day, as well as process, process mapping, very much to Wade's point earlier. Well, well, Matthew, you're, you're allowed to keep repeating the concept of flow because it, it's so accurate and, and can be such, a, such an assist for companies that are looking to improve their performance. I, I also love your, your allegory of spelunking with regards to data analytics, you know, that, that it, because it is very much like kind of fumbling through the dark. And, and when we've worked with folks about trying to leverage their data in ways that can be more meaningful to them, you know, it, it's pretty straightforward to create predictive algorithms, you know, things that are just based on historical patterns, the historical data that the, that the client has and helping that inform how workflow uh, might be transformed or improved. The, the trickier part is when you really get into forecasting, you know, identifying these independent variables that have strong correlative, you know, re regression effects with the key data that they're trying to measure. And I just, I just love that, that mental image of, you know, down in the dark with, with limited visibility and just kind of feeling your way forward until you, you do discover these independent variables that help you put together forecasts that can better inform your reaction to different circumstances. So Wade, Matthew, I'd like to pick up on this, this conversation. I think it's great. And this point you have around, again, spelunking, to me, that sounds like, again, one needs to be comfortable then across an organization with data utilization, right? So again, earlier, we kind of talked about this need for a, an organizational culture that recognizes the humanity of interactions and focuses on happiness and measuring that. At the same time, we're also talking about, it sounds like, again, a culture, an organizational culture that is used to understanding data as an input into tactical and strategic decisions, right? How do you drive and kind of balance those two, especially when you start to, again, disperse employees across all layers of the organization in physically different locations? Wade, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing your perspective on that um, based on some of the experiences that you've had. Sure. Uh, a, a couple of things come to mind. It's you've got to train leaders and staff alike to appreciate that data is only ever going to be broadly directional for you. 
and it will never be capital R right, because what you want people to appreciate is a curiosity and a desire to continue learning um, about data sets. You know, we, we are blessed to live in the time that we do where data is omnipresent and, and frankly quite cheap, and you can ingest a variety of external data sets to complement your internal data. And, you know, you, you can just, I mean, people can just play with that forever in, in terms of trying to find what works and what doesn't. And if people have the mentality that we're in the process of building a better mousetrap, uh, doesn't mean we've built it. Don't expect to have one next week or next month or next year. But if we get better, um, that journey is going to help people become more uh, productively curious uh, and more astute uh, around their consumption and recognition of, of, how, uh, of how data connects and, and what those connections can surface to you about your business. Earlier, you mentioned um, some evolutions from um, Deming and then Ford. And then, of course, you know, Deming's influence included Harley-Davidson and not only Ford, but then um, some Japanese companies as well, one, um, one I believe being a Toyota, which was pretty popular. And I think broadly, a lot of the things that you've mentioned all circle in together, um, Wade. One of the most interesting changes that Toyota made that other companies hadn't made when they discussed metrics was enabling the people on the line to understand why, and then also enabling people on the line to stop the line. Mm -hmm. Anytime they saw something that wasn't within what they expected to experience or have as output. And that enabled people to take ownership of uh, the line and the quality and the experience and the output, perhaps different from um, other organizations and experiences, but in particular, what they did well was enable people to take ownership. And when we're talking about this data, it's just like product development, software delivery, it's just a normal human behavior uh, people don't know oftentimes what they want until they see what they don't want. And that's not that some people are just silly people and they don't know what's going on in life. Um, it's just a fact. Um, if I were to go shopping for shoes and I don't personally care for shopping, which starts us off on the wrong foot to start with, no pun intended. I often don't know for sure what I want, but I think I have an idea of I, what I want, but I may end up taking something home that wasn't part of the plan. That behavior is what we all tend to exhibit, which is I don't know what I want, uh, but I saw this one thing, I definitely don't want that. And we use that as the pole position. I think data happens that way. And just like the people on the line at Toyota were enabled to understand the vision and understand the why, and therefore take ownership of the line and stop the line if they saw a problem, in order to make sense of data, we need to do all of the assumed things first, which is put in place the infrastructure to collect and normalize and make available and so forth, event triggers and all of those things. That's like talking about refrigerators we need them, it needs to be there, it needs to be assumed, it shouldn't be the point of the conversation. What should be the point of the conversation is, now that I have it, how do I enable the people to help me discover and find what is valuable so that I know how to improve? As a leader, I don't always have the answers. In fact, if you were to talk to my wife and kids, you would tell, they would tell you that I seem to not have the answers more often than I do have the answers. 
because personal and professional lives intertwine so well, especially nowadays. But because I don't always know for sure, I'm happy to put a pole in the ground and say, stick in the ground and say, this is our point of reference. This is our baseline. Therefore, this is the point from which we will evolve our organization. However, I'm not involved in every single thing that happens all day, every day, all of the time. So I'm reliant upon people that I trust. And in order for me to enable people that I trust, I have to give them latitude to teach me. I have to enable and equip them to observe, see, understand, and choose and say, hey, Matthew, you said this is where we need to go. And you said this is why we need to get there. And I'm totally bought in. I agree with you. I'm, I'm all in. Now that I've been looking through this data and receiving this data, I think some of this stuff, they're false positives. They, they don't tell us what we need to know in a reliable manner. I think it's actually causing more of a problem than it's adding value, and we should just put it in the trash for now. However, these other things that we are tracking, super value, we should uh, amplify them, if you will. And there are a number of things we aren't tracking that perhaps we should be. So if I say to the organization, concentrate on flow, concentrate on simplicity, concentrate on value, concentrate on uh, client happiness, if you will, would they hire you? Now I have this data. I'm enabling you to stand at the line and pull the red cord and stop this line if you see something silly that will preclude us or otherwise inhibit us from getting to our vision. So grabbing the data is noise until we enable people to see. And enabling people to see doesn't mean I know what all of the reports or single panes of glass should look like, but rather I know that they know and that they will discover through time. But to get it right the first time is an ideal, but it's not always a reality. But when I enable people and I cast the vision and I give them the latitude to discover and define and refine, and we all concentrate on flow, now I'm going to get to a single pane of glass. Now I'm going to make sense of the noise that is too much data or poor data. Now I'm going to have a team that says, my company will get from here to there because of we. But that means I have to cast the vision and also then give the latitude for people to discover and define and, re and refine along the way. What a spectacular conversation. Wade, you should answer the questions first for, uh, from now on, uh, because I really like some of the things you're saying. Oh, no worries. I, a, lot of, a lot of rich territory you're covering. I mean, it really speaks to me in terms of how do you ensure that leaders are comfortable enough to give agency to their staff, not just for the responsibility of the process, but for the responsibility of, um, uh, of what is that data that you're looking at? And I love how you described that, you know, the people doing the work might say, hey, this was an important measure and it's throwing up a lot of false positives. So what do we do? You know, I, my mind goes back to an experience many years ago where we had a very successful implementation of kind of a balanced scorecard and league tables across, you know, over 50 different distributed locations. And when people started to perform well against the key metrics, uh, we, we sort of opened it up and invited people to say, look, we're going to add in seasonal metrics. 
and you're the people that decide what they are. And we, we kind of joked about it. We did it almost as like a fashion catalog where, you know, there's the, the, the spring collection or the summer collection. And this is where people actually felt agency to step forward and propose the data that they thought was most valid for determining whether or not value is being delivered for the customer. And I'm really excited about a lot of the new tools today that can help people do that. I mean, not to make a platform specific plug. I mean, this could be Power BI or Tableau or, or any sort of um, product in that space, but the visualization of that data is extraordinarily powerful because you know, in, unless you just happen to have a love of metrics and statistics, you know, a, a flat Excel file isn't going to move you or change your behavior. But the ability for people to now visualize large and complicated data sets and for them to see the relationship between independent variables and the metrics that they're using in their workspace. You know, I really think that this is going to further democratize data, put put the power in the hands of people that are doing work to be able to really articulate very sophisticated concepts uh, without getting kind of lost in the in the weeds of just you know black and white numbers but rather talking in images you know and, and kind of wow. going back to your earlier example you know matthew of you know people crave that context and and pictures are wonderful storytelling devices and and if you can line those things up you know that the agency the ability for people to change the metrics that they're being baselined and measured against and to give them tools that visualize it you know th those three ingredients will build a very very sturdy foundation for success Perfect. Well, I know we're down a few minutes. So Matthew, any closing comments or additional thoughts? I, first of all, I've absolutely enjoyed this thread of conversation that we've had. Down the rabbit hole have we gone and what a wonderful uh, conversation. Second, uh, just to amplify or build upon something you've said, Wade, is the visualizations. It's data is boring to almost everyone who doesn't understand what it means. It's noise. And so to your uh, well-placed point about data visualizations and, and the tools that you mentioned are spectacular examples, it's not enough to have data and it's not enough to have reports, dynamic reports where you see moving lines and moving things. It's not enough. The whole value of having data is to enable people to understand meaning. I see the data, but I don't know what it means. That's a, that's a fail. Um, the data is therefore noise. To see the data and recognize what it means and the implications and the ripples and the associative decisions that I need to go make to help someone see problems from different angles or from a different perspective in my opinion, that is a successful implementation of visualizations of data. Anything less than that oftentimes is gradient, turns out to be gradients of perhaps nice graphics, just not meaningful graphics. So having the data and having meaningful data, very difficult. In our next podcast on technology and human-centric transformation in financial services, We'll take a deep dive into the virtualization of the customer experience and what financial services organizations need to do to retain and win customers in the next normal.
Be well.